welcome back to the Rooster Crows podcast for the week of December 21st, 2020. This week we'll be talking about one thing this Christmas which hasn't changed, Christmas trees. While we all struggle to deal with Christmas lockdowns, which mean fewer people at the dinner table over the holidays, and shopping that is harder than ever, it seems that the desire to put up a Christmas tree is stronger than ever. Sales are through the roof, and some places are reporting shortages. But why is that? Why do we want to put up a Christmas tree no matter what? That's what Stephen Milton and Joyce Taylor are going to be talking about today. We'll also be hearing from our choir providing their beautiful performance of Mary Did You Know. But first, let's talk about the meaning of Christmas trees. Christmas tree, oh Christmas tree, how lovely are the Hey everybody, um, this is Stephen Milton speaking. I'm one of the ministers at Lawrence Park Community Church, and I am talking to one of our congregants, Joyce Taylor. Hi there. Yeah, hi Joyce. So we are here today talking about Christmas trees. And uh, Joyce, like you were saying to me that you actually have a personal connection with Christmas trees through your sister, because this is a weird Christmas tree year, right? Absolutely, it's a weird Christmas tree year. I mean, uh, there's been uh, reports in the news about a shortage of Christmas trees this year, but uh, my sister lives on 50 acres in the middle of nowhere in eastern Ontario, and her basically neighbor, because it's one concession over, is a Christmas tree farm. And she thought, it's a Christmas tree farm. It doesn't matter if there's shortages in, you know, parking lots and, you know, grocery stores and you know, garden centers. Yeah, that's they a city problem, trees. right? Yeah, exactly. This is a city problem. It's not a country problem. So this past weekend, uh, around about the 19th or so of December, she and her husband went over to the neighboring Christmas tree farm where they go every year to get a Christmas tree because they like their Christmas tree to be fresh for Christmas. Right, as and one they, does. Yeah, exactly. You know, they don't like getting it at the beginning of the month and then having dead needles all over the place by, by the time Christmas rolls around. So uh, they get there and instead of like the usual rows and rows of Christmas trees ready to buy, there's like maybe 20 trees. And so they went and they picked out their tree and then they got to chatting with the person who was, you know, doing the cash and doing the sales. And she's saying, yeah, we're hoping that we have enough to last until Christmas. And there's, she's thinking, but can't you just cut down more? And it turns out you can't because it takes, well, it takes eight to 10 years for a Christmas tree to grow. So uh. they have a certain amount that they planted like eight to 10 years ago for this year. And so now with all the people, you know, the snowbirds staying home and everybody getting much more into doing things at home for Christmas and wanting more Christmas trees, that's why they can't just cut down more because it's going to impact how many they have next year. Yeah, right. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was reading um, about this, that in the States, they're also having a Christmas tree shortage. And there's a couple of things, right? 
A, everybody's staying home, right? So absolutely everybody's getting a Christmas tree who wants one, um, uh, or at least trying to get one. And then the yep. other thing is because it takes like eight to 10 years to grow them. Well, eight to 10 years ago was 2010. And in the American oh. context, that wasn't so long after the economic meltdown of 2008, right? So absolutely, a lot of farmers went out of business. Uh, others were just, you know, kind of hard on their luck. So maybe they weren't planting as many. And apparently it was also a bad year for growing Christmas trees. Like it was a really wet year than a dry year or the other way around. So we're actually living through a kind of, you know, shortage of Christmas trees that started like, you know, 10 to 12 years ago. And then suddenly we have a pandemic and everybody's at home and wants a tree. Holy cow. What, you know, a confluence of, uh, you know, you know, like a total you know, storm of, of problems with Christmas trees. <laughs> it's it's hard to, thought, eh? yeah, it's hard to say this politely, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a really big problem. And, and, it, and it sort of begs the question, right? Why do we want Christmas trees so bad? You know, like when we see shortages of other things, with the exception of toilet paper, we often back off and we find other ways of doing things, right? But Christmas trees just seem to be like mandatory. You just, you know, you, you just have to have a Christmas tree. So why, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's something I've been puzzling about over the last few years because, you know, okay, I, I am one of those people who really loves having a Christmas tree. And every single uh, December, my wife and family and I have the same stupid argument about whether we will have a Christmas tree. And everyone knows that we will because <laughs> I'm not going to give any ground. Like, I think it's really important. Um, but we always say, oh, it's inconvenient. You know, it's a drag. The cats will pull it down. There's needles everywhere. And, you know, as much as they have always lost this argument, I recognize that they're right. You know, there's nothing particularly convenient about a Christmas tree. I mean, are you a Christmas tree person? Why do you like Christmas trees if you do? Oh, I, I love Christmas trees, except that I live in a condo. Mm. And because of the inconvenience and the mess, I'm not allowed to have a live Christmas tree. I can no, only have a fake one. Yes, because oh. it creates too many problems uh, for the, you know, in the garbage area at the end of the year. And it creates too much of a mess. And so it's right now against the rules for me to have a Christmas tree or a live one. Um, so, you know, I have to, you know, in the normal times, you know, go to my mother's place or go to my sister's place if I want to see a live Christmas tree. So do you have an artificial one? I do have an artificial one. Ah, okay. Yes. So, and yes. I think that, that that speaks to the kind of the mystery of Christmas trees in that, you know, normally, you know, if if there was like a shortage of cats, right? Or let's say, you know, your condo said you can't have a cat. You yes. would not go out and buy a fake cat statue, right? Like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you just wouldn't. The same thing with dogs, right? Nobody buys a fake dog because that's the next best thing to a real dog, right? Um, so Christmas trees, though, we will buy the fake one because there's something about that thing which looks like a tree but isn't a tree um, that's really important around Christmas time. And it kind of begs the question of why. Um, and, you know, there's different ways of answering that question because... You know, Christmas trees aren't actually that old historically. Um, it's a German practice that started like, you know, centuries ago. But in terms of Anglo-Saxon nations like ours and the States and England, it really starts with the royal family marrying into the German royal 
families um, back in the late 18th century. And one of the English princesses, I think it was Charlotte, said, uh, well, well, actually, she was German. She, she came over and she said, well, we have this custom of, you know, cutting down a bough, um, you know, like a branch of a tree yeah. and putting it inside and then decorating it. So that's what they did for a number of Christmases. And then one year she decides, you know, I want to I want to do this better. You know, I want to do this big. I'm a royal now so I can do things big. So she decided to cut down a whole tree and she brought it inside and they started decorating it. So. The, like the, that was and that was like the year 1800 apparently that she brought in a tree and that you know as one does right people like to copy whatever the royals are doing so it sort of catches on slowly that right. you know hey every year the the royals have a christmas tree and they're putting all sorts of presents and toys and, and candies and stuff on it hey maybe we should do that too and it starts to grow first among the aristocracy then it filters down to us commoners but I think also some of the German immigrants to North America around that time probably also brought that tradition with them too. So it yeah. was probably a whole combo of uh, factors that actually allowed this tradition to start in North America. Yeah, absolutely. And there's records of that, like in Canada, of um, German immigrants, you know, cutting down a tree and putting and putting stuff up and everybody else looking at them and thinking they were a little bit nuts, you know. Um, well, especially with the candles on it and everything burning down. Well, yeah, exactly. It was like <laughs> incredibly dangerous. But that bespeaks that there must be something going on with a tree that like there's something there must be something really deeply meaningful about having a tree if you're willing to risk burning your house down to have it inside your house and to light it up, you know, like, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, it's not like it was easier back then to replace your house than it is now. You know, if you're a pioneer and you burn down the log cabin, you sweat it over. It's no big deal. It's it's no small deal to, you know, have to replace it. So, um, oh, especially and get all the community out to, you know, help you raise the barn again that went down with the house as well. Yeah, exactly. And they will probably resent you for the stupid reason that you burned down yes. your log, your log cabin. Right. So. Um, so and yet people did it anyway. Right. So um, I've, I've wondered about this for a long time. And one of the things which I came across years ago when I was um, studying uh, anthropology for a television series I was working on was that uh the funny thing is that people all over the world have this thing about trees in their religions. like And evergreens too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Often evergreens, but you know, not every part of the world has evergreens. But um, like, uh, but there's trees in religions all over the world. Like in the Norse myths, Odin, um, who we get our name Wednesday from, Odin's Day, Wednesday. Um, Odin uh, gets himself sort of hung up almost kind of like crucified in the world in this tree um which is like a cosmic tree that links uh to heaven and to the underworld and he's on there for nine days before the whole world can be regenerated um and you know do you know anything about buddhism a little bit i know the yeah. buddha sat under a tree didn't he exactly yeah like when he when he finally reaches enlightenment he sits underneath the bodhi tree um in India and just sort of sits there for a really long time, like days and days and days at a time. And um, he's tempted and tempted. And then he just finally meditates his way through to enlightenment. And it happens under a tree. Um, and even the Mayans, you know, who couldn't possibly have had any contact with European culture, um, 
to be, get influenced by us, they also have like a major tree as part of their traditions. Um, it's called like the Seba tree and it holds up the heavens like a tent pole. And it's like critical to the Mayan map of the universe. And this is just found all over the place. Like there's just trees everywhere. And what all these trees have in common, and they're, the anthropologists call them uh, either cosmic trees or the axis mundi, like the axis of the world, is that they're like, they, they have roots that go down into the underground, which is the place of the dead. And then they have the trunk, which is kind of like, you know, middle earth, like the world that we live in. And then right. they've, they've got branches that go up into the heavens, which is where the gods live. Right. So they're, they're kind of a map of the known, the three levels of the known universe, which is pretty cool. That um, is pretty cool. Yeah. And, and uh, all of us grow up with a version of this story uh, in Jack and the Beanstalk. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. How, yeah. So you remember how that story goes? Absolutely. You know, Jack uh, ends up trading uh, whatever he was, you know, funds he was uh, given from his mother to go buy food or whatever they needed for these magic beans. Right. He brings them home and his mother is absolutely disgusted with him and throws the beans out into the yard and they grow up into this incredible tree i mean it's it's a, called a beanstalk but it has to be tree-like because it's enough strong enough for him to climb up to the giant's world yeah exactly yeah so he goes up into the heavens right where he finds this superhuman being a giant right who yes isn't very nice, as it turns out. <laughs> All right. Yes. Um, and then, and then, what does the giant do? Well, the the giant is a, you know, a a, a carn well carnivore. He he eats people. This is the fee fi fo fum part, right? Right. Yeah, goes, exactly. Fee fi fo fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman, right? And he chases after Jack, and Jack heads back down the the this cosmic tree right um yes. and it doesn't he chops it down at the end right he does but doesn't he get also get some of the the giant's wealth or yeah treasure? that's right yeah 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 that's right so he gets down to the bottom with some with some treasure he chops down the tree and the giant dies and the the tree's done but but it's like it's a it's a folktale survival of this idea of this cosmic axis, which is a tree. Because if you climb this tree, you get up into the realm of the heavens, and if you can come back down, then you can bring some of the heavens with you, right? Like some of the right. some of the power of the heavens. And I think, as I recall, the Jack and the Beanstalk story starts with their father. The father of the household has died, right? And that's why. Um, the moms in such economic straits. So there's yes. this hint, there's this hint about death, right? So like dad is sort of, you know, symbolically and probably literally under the ground where the beanstalk plants itself and leads up to the heavens, right? Which is where right. the gods live. So you've got this connection right in the story of the dead being underground, a tree which can bring you up to the upper level of the cosmos, and a human being can actually traverse these worlds using this tree as a kind of ladder. Fair, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Which also reminds me of stories, um, English stories that are uh, written in the 1930s that I read as a child that my parents gave me by Enid Blyton hmm. and the magic faraway tree in the enchanted woods. 
And again, this was a tree where you climb up to another world that is magical and has characters and um, creatures that you would never see in, you know, 1930s, 1940s England. Right. Very cool. Yeah. And, you know, and by the 1930s and 40s, England is uh, the most industrialized state on earth, right? Since they were the ones who, you know, basically invented the industrial age. And so highly technological, very secular by that point. I mean, you know, they're, they're still have the Church of England and everything, but they're becoming a more secular society. And yet, you know, when they fantasize, right, they fantasize using a tree, right, as the magic portal to another world. So, the, these, uh, you know, people have argued that um, these ideas are planted deep in our collective um, unconscious, right? That kind of Jungian idea that we have this sort of deep repository of mythic images, a kind of mythic language that our minds understand and will keep reproducing in different forms in um, the stories that we tell to ourselves because it's meaningful to us that way. But I guess the riddle is, right, for, you know, we, we go to a Christian church, it's like, okay, well, if this is so important, where's the important tree in the Jesus story? Because there doesn't seem to be one, right? Well, depends how you look at the cross. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Jesus definitely dies on a piece of wood, right, the cross. And, yes. And... Certainly in oldie times, like back when they were first writing up the New Testament in the centuries right after that, uh, they referred to the cross as a tree, like unambiguously. Yeah. Paul, Paul refers to it in his letters, which are in the New Testament, as he calls it the tree. And it was considered the cursed tree, like nobody wanted to die on a cross. Um, oh, no, I can well imagine that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not surprising, right? Like, you know, it's a horrible, horrible way to die. Um, yes. And... And what's interesting is um, the way one of the reasons they talked about the cross as a tree was because they were trying to link it to the Garden of Eden story. Oh, with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. And there's actually two trees there. Do you remember what the other tree is? Oh, was so, it the tree of eternal life? Yeah, exactly. So there's a tree of immortality and there's a tree of basically death, right? Like the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sounds like a good tree to take a bite out of, but when they take a bite out of it, then they're told, oh, because you did that, you're going to die. Like, you're, you're going to be subject to death. So, in the Garden of Eden, there's one tree that leads to immortality and the other tree that leads to death without immortality. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, not good, right? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, it's like they took the cosmic tree and they split it in two, right? Because one tree leads to the kind of death where you just end up in the ground. Whereas the other tree will make you like a god, right? Like in the Bible, right. it, it, in the Bible it says, God says, you know, we better kick them out of the garden lest they take a bite of the other tree and become like us. Um, so, and yes. that us, of course, has always been mysterious. Who's God talking to? Um, that's a theological question. But what's, what's very clear is that um, this cosmic tree exists in the, in the Hebraic tradition, in the Old Testament, in the Garden of Eden, it's just that they split the tree into two parts. The part that points downwards to death and the part that points upward to the realm of the gods. Um, and so when the Christians started talking about the cross as a tree, they were saying, this cross, because of what Jesus did on it, will lead to eternal life because Jesus gets resurrected. So the, the 
the cross, like your your like the stories that you were talking about, you know, that you read as a child, the cross is a portal to immortal life. Um, right, of course. Right? Whosoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yeah, yeah, and so they, you know, the the kind of the genius, like the the prevailing strategy for the way Hebrews and Christians get across philosophical and theological ideas, is that we tell stories, right? Like yeah. all, all of our ideas are locked up in stories, very different from the Greeks who locked up their ideas in philosophical texts. We tell it in stories, which can make it obscure in one way, but also very rewarding because once you get a story in your head, it's hard to lose. So back in the day, people made up stories about the cross itself as though it had a personality. And there are stories, there's legends that go like this where... Uh, Back back near the beginning, when Adam and Eve had left the garden, um, I guess Eve gets sick, and uh, Eve or one of her children gets sick, and Adam says to his third son, Seth, who's the one who's born after Abel is killed, he says to Seth, I want you to go back to the Garden of Eden, sneak in, <laughs> and get to, get to that tree of immortality, and break off a twig, because that twig will help cure Eve, because, you know, it's the life-giving tree. So <clears throat> somehow Seth gets into the garden, he steals a twig, he brings it back to heal Eve. And then the, uh, then the, the legends go on that that twig um, was planted and becomes the tree from which the cross that Jesus was crucified on is made. Oh, I had never knew that. Yeah, it's really obscure. I mean, these are not stories that we tell anymore, you know, particularly in Protestant circles, right? Um, oh, yeah, we're, particularly. We're very, we're very rational about our, our faith, right? Um, but yeah, but I mean, it's a beautiful story for sort of saying, okay, that cross is actually linked to that promise of immortality. That's a bit like some of, of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia stories. Mm. Because uh, if you remember, it all starts off with the magician's nephew. And there is the, a tree that bears fruit. And uh, the magician's nephew, and I can't remember the name of the character off, off, the top of my off, off the top of my head, but the boy who is going between the two worlds, um, his mother is dying. Oh. And hmm. at the end of the story, Aslan, you know, the, the lion yep. mm -hmm. from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, yeah. tells him to take a piece of the fruit of this tree to plant it in the ground. It will then grow in England and the fruit of the fruit will cure his mother. Huh. And then when that tree dies, it is made into the wardrobe. Oh. Okay. Oh. That becomes the portal. Oh, that's amazing. I had no idea. Huh. Yes. Okay. Huh. And so, and then the nephew, the, the, the boy is the professor who owns the house oh. where the children end up being sent during the Blitz. Right. Oh, I had no idea. That's fascinating. Holy yes. cow. Now, yeah, that, I think, believe that book was written after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So it was all, you know, sort of a, a prequel. Right. Um, yeah. But... Huh. Yeah, so again, it's all linked in kind of like your, you know, Eve story. It yeah. again all ties up together. 
That's amazing. Well, and C.S. Lewis was, you know, he knew Christian legends really, really well. So oh, yeah. it's, it's entirely possible that was a deliberate echo. Oh, that is yes. so cool. But, you know, the funny thing about all this, right, is that, um, you know, we're talking about this in terms of fantasies and stories and stuff. But, you know, what we started talking about was Christmas trees, right? And Christmas trees, you know, we're, we're, we're sharing stories right now that neither one of us has ever heard, right? And we're going, whoa, that's so cool. And Christmas trees belong to the age where most people don't know any of these stories about sacred trees, right? Um, right. You know, if, if, I mean, if you're an immigrant, you know, from, say, uh, an Asian nation and you're a Buddhist, then, of course, you know about the Bodhi tree, but you're probably not saying, oh, Bodhi tree, Christmas tree, same thing, because it isn't, right? Like, Christmas trees are obviously different. But it begs the question, right, if cosmic trees play such a big role in religions all over the world and we live in a rational age where you know lots of people are secular but they're still putting up christmas trees is a christmas tree a cosmic tree in some way is that why we're all putting them up that's a really good question because i mean think about if okay i'm just going to recap what a cosmic tree is right cosmic tree is a connection between the underworld the overworld like where we live right and then the heavens right that's what a cosmic tree does right so let's look at a christmas tree uh what do you put on the top of a christmas tree well you put something heavenly like a star or an angel right yeah so that's a no-brainer that works really well and then underneath the tree where the roots would be if we hadn't cut the tree down right what do you put under what do you put underneath a tree all the gifts from your relatives and friends who are your personal roots. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, and often those presents come from far away, right? Um, you know, so you've got roots which extend, you know, sometimes continents away, you know, back to the old country, you know, where your parents are, or where your grandparents are. So you've got these roots which go out. And, and I think symbolically, those, you know, the presents are sent by people who are alive, but every Christmas we remember people who are dead, right? You know, yeah. like a- Auntie would have loved to have been here this year, right? But she died a couple years ago. So those, the understory of the tree, like where the roots are, where it's dark, right? Like that's the thing. <laughs> it's, it's actually hard to fish out presents underneath a Christmas tree because it's dark down there, right? But Oh, absolutely. You got to get the kids to crawl underneath to get the ones that are closest to the trunk. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it's messy down there and needles fall on it and stuff like it's it's inconvenient, but it's also dark and it reminds us of people who aren't there and by extension people even who are dead. Like we're we're reminded of all the people who make us possible, right? Like yes. biologically and socially by the presence that we put underneath the tree. Like it's not convenient to put presents under a tree. It'd make way more sense to put them on a table next to the tree, right? But, oh, absolutely. But we don't do that. And then it adds a degree of mystery, too, which is important and part of, you know, that world of the dead. And then then there's the middle of the Christmas tree. Um, what sort of stuff do you put on your Christmas tree? Um, I really like the uh, I'm into the blue and silver right? sort of, uh, you know, pattern. Um, so I have lots of sparkly stuff. And, uh, I you know, because... Uh, well, until recently, there were a lot of dogs in my extended family. Um, I would put the less breakable stuff lower down so the dogs can't get at it. Right. And then the yep. more breakable stuff up top. Right. And, and then lots of... of lights as well. 
Yeah. And what sort of breakable stuff do you have on your tree? Oh, balls and, you know, um, uh, oh, I have some glass ornaments that are, uh, look like a little bit like icicles. And then my sister also does pottery. So I have, she has made some little pottery Christmas tree ornaments and some little ornaments that you can stick like a little uh, twig with berries on it or something like that in it. Right. Cool. Yeah. And, and my Christmas tree is the same thing. There's there's all sorts of uh, fragile things like fragile bulbs and stuff, which are made of glass or like really, really thin metal. Right. And every year, yes. it seems like one of those thing, babies falls off the tree and smashes into a million bits on the floor. Right. Yes. And 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 they're all wrapped up in paper and stuff in the boxes that we put them away in because they're so fragile. And yes. it kind of it kind of begs the question. Right. Like, why do we put fragile things on a tree? You know, when we've got pets in the house, we've got children in the house, you know, like we we're smart. We can make bulbs that look nice that are made of solid plastic that would just bounce if they hit the floor. We oh, can do that. It wouldn't be the same. <laughs> but it wouldn't be the same. But that that's like that's what I find fascinating that when when you have a tradition that doesn't really make much rational sense. And yet, and we will defend the impractical thing that we do every single year, even though, you know, inevitably things get broken. That's your clue that something deeply symbolic and meaningful is going on because it doesn't make any rational sense. Right. And the thing about cosmic trees is the middle part of the tree is the part that isn't immortal. It's not dead, right? It's not dead like the underground and it's not immortal like the, uh, like the heavens. It's that in-between place where time passes and fragile things grow up, live, and then die, right? That's just what happens on earth. Everything is impermanent. Right. And, And we cover our Christmas trees in impermanent ornaments. Yes. No, we absolutely do. And right. yeah. And then we also frequently buy more. Like I have more <laughs> ornaments that I can yeah. possibly put on the tree. Yeah, right. Yeah. And and if you're a parent, um, you know, inevitably uh, the Christmas tree gets these, uh, you know, popsicle stick snowflakes and stuff, which your kids made back in <gasps> kindergarten nursery school, right? Which oh, just yeah. The- or the construction paper Santa Claus. Exactly. Yeah. And which are, you know, ugly. Yes. <laughs> you know, ugly yet charming. And we put them on the tree. And as the kids get older, they groan. Why are you putting that on the tree? It's so embarrassing. I made that, you know, the sparkly stuff I put on with glue is falling off. But parents put it on because yeah. I think it's a reminder of the precious transience that is childhood. Right. Like every time you see that popsicle snowflake, you remember your daughter or son when they were young. So and and you were saying something about um, icicles, right? Uh, What kind of what? Yeah. You put icicles on your tree. I do put icicles on my tree, but uh, I have given up on the um, plastic um, sort of tinsel ones. Mm. I now have actually some tin icicles um, that are. Um, a little more durable and I think prettier and uh, don't cling to you and all your clothes with static electricity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or or get consumed by your cats and come out in the kitty litter later, right? Um. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> but but yeah, but you know, what is an icicle but a temporary phenomenon? Yes. Right? Icicles are born to melt, right? Like they're just temporary. So, and you know, yeah, they bespeak winter and, you know, it makes sense on a tree, which is all about a winter celebration as much as it is a religious one. But on the other hand, they're, you know, they're not built to last. We don't put up pieces of, if we really were dedicated to the permanence of winter, we would put up um, ornaments that somehow invoked Antarctica, right? Because it's yes. still frozen all the time. But we don't. We put up the thing that's going to melt, you know? Yes. So, so it's... I think that the reason, you know, there's a run on Christmas trees this year and we have this huge Christmas tree business is because unbeknownst to our conscious minds, we like having a cosmic tree in our house every year at December when it gets really dark and, and, and you know, kind of scary and dismal outside. We, we get solace from having a reminder that we are linked to the entire cosmos, even when it seems like everything is at its most dead and most deadly, particularly if you live in the North where it's cold and, you know, if your car gets stuck and, you know, you could die of, you know, of, of um, you could die of, by freezing to death. Yeah. But we put in these trees, which look green, which is nice, but they also represent the entire cosmos. And probably that's particularly relevant this year with all the uncertainty from the pandemic, yeah. we're going back to our cosmic traditions. Yeah, exactly. That that sort of uh, existential anxiety that we're all feeling, right, is assuaged in some part by saying, no, really, we belong to the cosmos. I am not just, you know, a piece of dust that will be forgotten. I belong to something bigger than me. Very Which cool. Is, yeah, which is nice, you know. That is the kind yes. of solace that we need, right? I mean, that's the kind of solace that Christians take from their faith and Jews take from their faith. And, you know, the Buddha, the Buddhists, you know, seek by trying to escape the cycle of regeneration, right? That we belong to this bigger system which is meaningful and is wonderful. And Christmas trees represent that uh, both explicitly and implicitly, which is kind of nice. It is really nice. Yeah. So... This has been great, Joyce. Thanks for talking about Christmas been. trees with me. It's been great. We should do something like this again. We should. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Well, good thing it's a podcast. We can do that. <laughs> awesome. All right. <laughs> Thanks well, so much. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. That was Reverend Stephen Milton and Joyce Taylor in conversation about the mystery of Christmas trees. This Christmas, our choir has had to be very creative about how to perform carols for our Sunday services. Here's one of their virtual choir pieces recorded separately in their own homes. It is the beautiful Mary Did You Know. The choir is directed by Mark Toes. Baby boy will one day walk on water. Mary, 
That's it for this edition of the Rooster Crows podcast. I'm Judy Pressman, the program manager at Lawrence Park Community Church. We're a progressive Christian congregation in Toronto, Canada. If you would like to learn more about us or attend any of our online services, please visit our website at www.lawrenceparkchurch.ca.